Hello and welcome to another episode of the Football Podcast, where football meets politics. I'm one of your co-hosts, Guy Burton, and this is my other co-host, Francesco Belcastro. How are you doing, Francesco? I'm fine, Guy. How are you? Well, I'm doing really well, and I feel very pleased because I'm now allowed to do the introductions, having had a bit of a problem with my microphone in recent weeks, so I feel promoted in a way. I mean, a, a bit of a problem has been a tragedy. Listeners <laughs> have been writing and, and texting and asking uh, what was going on with your with your technology. You issues. are being so melodramatic, but never mind. Anyway, <laughs> what are, do you know what we're talking about today, uh, Francesco? Well, today is, is going to be a great episode. As you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a trade union man myself, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to today's episode. Exactly, because today we're going to be talking about footballers and labor rights and probably more generally human rights as well and to join us to talk about these things we've had we've got an excellent uh, group of guests we've got alexander bielefeld who is the director uh, of global policy and strategy for men's football at fifpro and fifpro being the the football players worldwide union uh, alexander has been at fifpro since 2018 has been and has been working for more than a decade on uh, players issues and you know, representing their concerns at the highest level. And we also have Dr. Alex Colvin, who is a former professional footballer who's played in, in the Netherlands for Everton, for Leeds and Liverpool, and the current head of strategy and research for women's football at FIFPro. She's also got a PhD, which looks at the employment policy of professional women athletes. And her research, which was one of the first, looked at the well-being, welfare and gender-specific issues that women encounter in the sports labor market. Uh, we'll be spe speaking to her a little bit later, but Alexander, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So, so, uh, so Alexander, before we start, obviously, it, it's good, you know, the subject matter that we're going to be talking about today is pretty serious. But we are always a little bit interested just to know whether guests have a particular football team that they follow, and if so, which one it is, and how you feel about them. Well, look, uh, I played academy football, so I didn't, didn't quite make it uh, to the professional ranks, but I played at the academy team in my hometown in Hamburg. Uh, at FC St. Pauli, um, so that's my my boyhood club, um, yeah, and still wearing the, the colours with with pride. Mm -hmm. The very famous skull and bones badge, I always remember. <laughs> so, um, and but second division now, I think at the moment, right? Second division playing a fantastic football. Hopefully, going up to first division at the end of the season. Uh, up of the league, right at the moment. Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, but look, it's one of these clubs, right? You you can't like not necessarily follow them uh, for the quality of the football, but rather for the passion and for the characteristics of the club and what they stand for. And um, yeah, it has been fantastic since the first day to follow the club, basically. And, and do St. Pauli players get kind of a, you know, sort of a fast track uh, to <laughs> representation through your uh, support for them at all or not? No, absolutely not. I don't think <laughs> But uh, fair enough, I think the, the current captain of the team is part of our Global Player Council, Jackson Irvin um, from the from Australia. Um, but uh, no, usually I think it's a club where the labor issues are actually fairly fairly well managed. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, yeah. It's been an absolutely on fire, the Asian um, Cup. Irvine yeah. has been playing very well. I follow a bit of it with Australia. So, yeah. 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 He, he's been brilliant with the club. Mm. And so, so, so can we talk a little bit about your organization and the work that you do at FIFPRO? So if you could explain a little bit to the, to the listeners what FIFPRO is and what it does, you know, sort of the key, you know, sort of the main issues that, uh, that, that your players, basically your members uh, face and the current kinds of campaigns that you're working on. 
Well, look, I mean, um, I think Francesco said at the beginning, right? Um, he's, a, he's a proud trade union man himself. Um, I think that's the essence of the organization, right? Um, first and foremost, um, FIFPRO is a trade union. Um, it's a trade union association. So um, professional football is a fairly labor um, and unionized sport. Um, and um, we have uh, national player unions in each of the playing markets or in many of the playing markets across the different uh, continents uh, in the world. Um, and usually those trade unions basically become members of, uh, of FIFPRO um, to, to basically join a, a global trade union body um, to, on the one hand, of course, share intelligence, share knowledge um, amongst um, the trade unions, um, so the player unions in our case. Um, but obviously also we're, we're operating in a industry and in a sectoral context which has become so globalized in the last 20 to 30 years right um and um, therefore also the employment issue issues the labor issues for professional players um have have simply internationalized over the past decades um therefore also fifpro has has grown as a voice for for unions to actually represent the interests of um, unions and the workforce issues of players um, on international issues. Um, so I think that's really, in a nutshell, um, what FIFA is about. Um, the organization, obviously, as you can imagine, and I think the, the organization has changed quite dramatically over, over a period of time. And uh, today, uh, today, I think we probably represent players on roughly 60 plus different policy issues or workforce issues. Um, from education to player development to health and safety issues to technology and commercial things, probably on the other end of the scale. Um, so it's a it's an extremely it's, it's it's an extremely broad field of of issues to union basically looking looking mm -hmm. after for the players collectively. Yeah. I mean, in that sense, it's probably a bit different from other um, unions that you you have. Um more of a variety of topics that you cover as opposed to other unions that will have two or three main themes and then the other one will be sides just because of the nature of the of the market and of the of the of the people you you support i guess i mean maybe i can take you a little bit through to through a, a travel through time um in terms of organization so i mean fifa was was founded in 1965 so it's it's a quite old organization right um and back then it was pretty much what I would call probably a gentleman's club, right? So mm -hmm. there were six, seven members, unions from national markets, Italy, Spain, England, um, the Netherlands, um, and, and people were exchanging information. They wanted to, to understand what are the issues players are facing basically in the national markets. Um, but then at the same time, you had national unions basically who, who have been much older than that, right? The PFA in England, for example, mm -hmm. um, really goes back to the start of the century. Um, same in France a little bit later, um, but these these player unions were already looking after the interests, after the employment interests, the workers' interests of the players in these domestic markets. Um, and it was then basically after the Second World War, already in the 50s and 60s, that we had the first major labor, let's say, fights in professional football in, uh, in England, but also in other markets. So I think the two names probably which which spring to mind are, are Jimmy Hill and, and mm. George East, who who basically back then already mm -hmm. won really important court cases in the in the courts in England 
on you know uh, minimum or maximum pay for players so salary disputes um, but also the freedom to basically offer services so basically um, to to switch from one club to the other um, but those were domestic disputes of course right yeah. um, but that's what unions back then uh, in that period wanted to to exchange on um, but there was of course no international employment market for professional football from a sector mm -hmm. of perspective. Um, and that took quite a quite a while until until the 90s. Um, and then in the 90s, I think there were probably from a political and society perspective, a couple of things happening at the same time, which ultimately led um, to a development which which accelerated professional football into this global entertainment industry, mm -hmm. which we know today. Um, and and for me, it's 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 mainly three, four major things which happened in the '90s. So first, of course, there was the emergence of of broadcast and commercial television mm -hmm. and color TV. So I think that the way people could consume football changed quite substantively from the from the '70s, for example. Um, then at the eighty in the '90s as well, I think the end the end of the Cold War. Um, shifted the mindset of people. I think it was a much, much more open society, much more focused on on commercial developments, commercial success. Right, as part of the end of the Cold War, we had also the the beginning of the European Union as we know it today. Mm. Uh, in 1994, with the Treaty of Maastricht, the establishment of the single European market, which suddenly meant you had one economic market operating in Europe. Right. Um, and, and suddenly, as part of that economic market, you had the freedom of workers to go from yeah. one employment market to the other, right? And the reason that the, the Bosman ruling came in 1995, right, is, is basically the expression of all of that, right? It's the expression of a liberated market in general after the Cold War. It's an um, acceleration in terms of commercialization through broadcast, um, but then it obviously is also the opportunity of, of players to offer their services across the continent, right? And if, if Jean-Marc Bosman wouldn't have happened in 95, you would have had another player with the same issue probably mm -hmm. a year later or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. But it's no, it was no surprise that, that, that all of that happened in, in, in the, in the mid-90s, basically. Um, and that obviously changed... From a, if you go now to the perspective of a labor union, right? Mm -hmm. Labor unions specifically, that changed obviously dramatically the need to cover international employment issues from a player perspective, because suddenly the markets were were literally growing at a at a speed which was not comparable to what we have what we had seen in the 60s, 70s, or 80s, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. um, and lots of international workforce issues were, were coming to the fore. Um, and, and that's something that the unions had to take care of, right? Um, so for FIFA, the 90s was really where I think the, the modern part of this organization was more or less born. Um, and then there was still probably until the mid-2000s, there was mainly a focus on, on the international transfer market, so it was a very lean organization still. It was mainly putting mm -hmm. around how do we shape the regulations that govern, you know, employment relationships, which is under under FIFA, the RSTPs. Um, and how do we do we, you know, how do we regulate that market? 
um, under the transfer system. Um, and then probably step by step, so like the mid-2000s, you know, the emergence of financial fair play, suddenly mm -hmm. we see the emergence of regulating financial issues um, at a European level um, or at a more international level than we, we ever did before. Um, at the same time, I think we have over the past years, the emergence um, of, of technology, of course, right? I think um, artificial intelligence, the ability to collect data from players in their performance environment. Mm -hmm. I think this is like where, where it has gotten to, to today. So I think FIFPRO now, as I said at the beginning, we, we're probably covering 50, 60 plus different policy areas, um, which are broadly relevant to the global employment market for players. And then obviously it always depends to to which playing groups you can you can attribute that to. Yeah, I mean, could, could I could I could I come in because one of the you're you're talking about the, the the growth explosion at the international level, but it also seems to be synonymous with Europe, right? And I'm sort of curious as to how much of the the focus is on the European market because obviously the Europe is 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 pretty much drawing in many of the players from around the world, or do you find yourself actually working in you know, in sort of regional markets as well. How do those markets look and, and what does that mean in terms of you know, the type of work that you do? Yeah, I mean, Europe is definitely the most integrated market, mm. um, which has something to do both with the, with the European Union and the way we regulate um, economic, but also social affairs within the European Union. I think this is very clearly also a, a, a symbol of, of the political landscape, simply, and, and the way European integration has worked over the past 20 or 30 years. Um, at the same time, obviously, from a professional football perspective, from an entertainment perspective, um, there obviously is a, is, a, is, is a core part of the professional football industry um, in terms of its economic activities, mm -hmm. which is sort of like galvanizing around key markets in in europe um but that should not take away that we have very old very established player unions trade unions um in in other markets around the world right so you you, you can for example go to agremiados the players union in argentina mm. which is a, a extremely well established and uh, organization with with a wealth of of, of tradition um uh, and history right um, but then obviously we also have unions who, who who are part of emerging markets and of course the the major league uh uh the major league soccer players union players association mlspa um is operating today very differently than they probably have been operating 10 15 years ago right mm -hmm. um but but what we can see of course is i think that also the player unions market in other parts of the world is is maturing. I think there's probably, if you look at it from a regional perspective, there's not the same level of integration as in Europe. Mm. If you go, for example, to Asia, which is also has also something to do with the vast territory Asia is covering, right? Also, mm. uh, from a cultural identity perspective, if you go to, to Australia or South Korea or Japan, um, these are all unionized labor markets from a football perspective. Um, it's a very different culture than... For example, our player union in Malaysia um, or in Indonesia, which is still part of the same Asian confederation from a footballing perspective, but obviously is still because of the distance, because of cultural differences, there is also, you know, there, there, there are differences to what they can do. Um, but the employment issues are, are actually quite similar, right? Mm -hmm. Specifically also because we have so many 
I think we 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 probably represent a a part of the entertainment industry which is extremely integrated from a sense that we have so much playing talent um that is playing in Europe but is coming from Asia and through yeah. the national team is still traveling back right is experiencing conditions in the of the national teams there so there there's just a lot of connectivity um in these markets between the different players even though some of them might be playing in Europe and they're going back so and um, that obviously is is also quite quite unique for for professional football I would say as a global sport can I remind listeners that we had an episode a month ago on the politics of football in uh, West Africa where the idea of you know sort of migrations and 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 labor as well it's it's crucial you know to the way that the football works there and to the kind of uh, um, so I'm sure that some of the issues that that are there complemented very well um complemented very well this this discussion um so I mean, one thing that is really really interesting is that obviously you you represent or you have an an overview of of different issues around the world which as you said are are there are similarities but there are also massive differences i was wondering in terms of just how how kind of the core part of the business or the core part of your activity works are there like notable differences between your members in terms of sort of elite players versus uh, non-elite um, professional players both at domestic level so we're talking about you know in 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 an english context between premier league and, and i don't know league 2 or also between sort of systems where you know salaries and conditions are very different i'd assume there are quite different challenges there usually uh, a player union in football is is mirroring the market right and um, the market realities of the employment opportunities um, of the workers in this specific sector now our unions and i think this speaks very much to the culture of professional football based on a on a open league competition system right with a pyramid structure um our unions will represent players across the professional different professional levels of the pyramid right mm-hmm. So even if I go to an extremely advanced playing market, and it doesn't matter if I if I take Italy or England or France, for example, I take the unions there, those unions will represent players in in the elite competitions. So in you know the Premier League, in uh, League A, in La Liga, in Serie A, but they will also uh, represent them down to Serie B and Serie C. C. Um, and similar, similarly in England, right? Mm-hmm. So you, what you will get as a union is that you you have a very you don't have a homogeneous body of memberships of of workers you represent, right? You you represent all the professional workers in in your industry, and um, and because this is a open competition system, you will represent workers and members that have very different experiences working in the same industry. So if you compare that for example to a uh, players union in the US right um so take even even in football so take our member in the US the MLSPA the players association for the MLS soccer players um this is a union who represents only who, who represents players in a closed league so that's mm-hmm. probably 800 workers mm-hmm. and obviously within this group of workers through the collective bargaining agreement you have a i would say a similar experience, a similar workers' experience when it comes to workforce issues, right? There's a minimum salary, there's a maximum salary, everyone plays in the major league soccer, so training conditions, schedules, fairly the same, fan experience, security issues, more or less 
the same, right, for everyone in the league. Um, if if you then go to to and it's the same for the NBA Players Association or NFL, yeah. right? It's a closed league. Um, very different, obviously, for a player union operating in Europe, right? Um, because of the Oakland League system, you will have players who have vastly different experiences and who will also have very different demands towards the union, right? They want to be represented on different issues. Um, so the biggest problem is at the moment that from, from our perspective, one of the, the, the main priorities in the elite part of the game is the excessive amount of workload that is put on elite players across all the different competitions they're playing, right? Yeah. Mm. This is, you know, it's harming performance, it's increasing injury, it's a lack of holiday, lack of rest, um, it has a negative impact on sustainable career paths, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's an issue for, you know, I don't want to say a handful of players because it's more than just a very small elite group, right? It's more players than you think, usually about that are impacted by that. But obviously, from your overall union membership, it's probably still just 10% of your members, right? Yeah. It's a very important group because that's the group of players who who will drive predominantly the wealth and entertainment value of our entire industry, right? Mm -hmm. Suppliers who play the top competitions who are a the most important resource for these competitions actually to, to run on that level, right? To generate that type of interest. Um, and we, we obviously put a lot of resources to tackle this issue from a labor perspective. Um, but nevertheless, this is still only something which is probably applicable to, if you look at it from an overall employment perspective, to a small group of workers. And a lot of other workers probably in our industry um, operate under rather precarious circumstances and probably would, would wish to have three, four games more in the calendar so that they get an additional month of contract you know, to feed their family. So can I, I can I ask you one thing, Alexander? Would you say that in national unions where these differences are, are very present, the ones you described, has this created tension uh, between uh, different issues of representation? Has it has it been a, has it been a problem? You'd say, of course, because you as a union, to you always have this this as in any other business or operation, right? You you need to match capacity resources and and apply them to your operations and you they are not endless and you make choices at the end of the day um so there's obviously always this kind of like well like what should be our priority right is it that catering the interests of of the top players and i think this is really important that it's wrong to play that against each other right and, mm -hmm. and easily fall into this trap to basically make this you know two opposing poles i think at the end of the day it's feeding of each other, and of course, you need a healthy balance. Um, but some players on the top playing less also means other players are playing more, right? Um, and it's important that the, that the unions, you know, that they they find a, a a good balance in terms of of allocating their resources. And while we need to to call out, you know, issues on excessive workload or you know the the elements of of new technologies entering our industry. At the same time, we also need to address health and safety issues, you know, uh, spectator violence, because that's yeah. an issue which holds everyone together, right? Like I can go to mm -hmm. Greece or Cyprus, um, where just in recent weeks we had major unrest, major, major concerns between government, police, uh, supported groups and the unions. 
um, about safety conditions in the stadiums, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it's important that you don't, you know, that you find an equilibrium between the issues. Um, yeah. But I think overall, I think we we're actually quite quite good spot at the moment, both both domestically and internationally, in, in calling these things out. You you alluded to this a little bit earlier that there are some markets which are you know, very well established in terms of uh, labor representation. But there are other, I mean, you also, but there are also these emerging markets, some countries in the world where, you know, labor representation isn't, and I'm ta not talking about football specifically, but more generally, uh, governments are not so receptive to uh, re representation by, by workers. I mean, how do you, how does FIFPRO go about uh, supporting its, its, uh, its members in those, that part of the world? I think this is really important when you when you when you start to have having a, a global perspective, then you will operate with differences in the markets, and they're they're quite significantly different. And I think you need to you need to find that probably also that humbleness that you know that 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 certain fundamental principles you would always as a trade unionist apply to a trade union, you know, in Europe probably well look different than you know when you operate in parts of Asia or in part of Africa. That's and. And that's not necessarily, you know, to take something away from from labor rights and a labor rights perspective. I think it's 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 also part of of accepting, you know, the differences in cultures um, in certain countries. I think most of our unions uh, or members uh, in in parts of Asia they would not call themselves player union because the, the word mm -hmm. union is a difficult it's a difficult term politically, right? Yeah. Um, so it's a player association, and in Africa, yeah. a lot of times it's a welfare association. Um, and, um, but obviously we, we try, you know, I mean, we, we do have very specific principles, you know, which, you know, which we can't, you, you can't compromise on as a trade union, right? Even yeah. as a national trade union. Um, but, uh, look, I think, I think we need a player union, for example, in, in Saudi Arabia, right? Like mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's a, a, certainly a emerging market. Um, we, we want that. You know, also that there is a, a viable competition offering employment opportunities and career choices and performance pathways to players in that part of the world. Um, and we want that the players within the context of the country they're playing in have the properties that they can focus on their job, right? Um, and that there is someone and there's a organization for them that, that, that looks after the rest and their collective interests, you know? Um, and that union... You know, or that organization will, by default, need to operate differently than, for example, the trade union in France. Mm -hmm. They love to strike. They love to go to court. Um, so things would need to to operate differently um, in a country such as Saudi Arabia. But you know, it, that doesn't matter necessarily for players. The players have collective mm -hmm. interests which they can't um, represent individually, and they need an organization to take care of that. Um, and and ideally, that's an organization which is a able to 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 affiliate and to associate with FIFPRO. At the moment, we don't have a member mm. there. Um, but um, of course, it is, is going to be a market with the World Cup coming up in the country, et cetera, et cetera, and different competitions, you know, that, that will grow in importance. And, you know, that 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 doesn't take anything away from anyone else. Um, but obviously, players need to have, you know, their, their collective interests represented there as well. I think the, the the talk of the of town of about everything it's at the moment is sort of technology and and AI AI related um, AI related. Um, is there any news from your side there? Anything that the listeners might be interested in, in knowing about? 
Yeah, interesting that you ask. I think I mean, a podcast about politics and football. I think we just just passed a couple of weeks ago the EU AI Act and things like that. So um, I think it's some something everyone everyone obviously uh, talks about um, in in the general terms of, uh, of of our society, and we kind of like try to find ways of, of getting a grip on that. But maybe let me ask you in return: How many data points do you think were collected of players at the World Cup 2018 in Russia? In a match, passes, shots, sprints—you know—it's—it's—it's it's, it's really blown up now, hasn't it? I mean, the betting industry pretty much—you can bet almost anything and everything now. It's not just the results of games, but you know how much percentage, you know how many passes, how many successful passes. So, I dread to think how many. Uh, it was 130,000 um, at the World Cup uh, in Russia. But now, how many do you think it was four years later in Qatar at the Men's World Cup? And the same for the Women's World Cup in Australia. At least three, four times more. That was eight million. Oof. Eight million. <laughs> uh, and the main reason for that is actually Sebio made it offside. Uh, okay. And, um, so we have basically different cameras under the roof of the stadium operating basically 29 body parts uh, every millisecond of the player, which adds up at the end of the day to, to 8 million data points per player per match. Um, and that's that's just the game-related technology. So that's not that's not what's happening in training, for example, right? Um, so for us as unions, obviously, this is something where I think in the past, you know, union, union people were specialists on contracts, and labor movement and, and, and things like that. And, you know, nowadays it's kind of like the, the new challenge for everyone to, to become a software engineer in, in one way mm -hmm. or another. Um, and it has obviously, you know, a massive impact on players, not just when it comes to, you know, to to official match operations, such as refereeing or officiating, but it actually has an impact on predictive technologies, specifically when it comes to injure, injury, mm -hmm. also recruitment and scouting, of course, you mentioned uh, the betting market, similarly the gaming market, uh, electronic arts has injected parts of these 8 million data points now um, in, the, in the new EA Sport FC game. So it's, it's a massive part. Uh, I think very few people know actually how intrusive that really is. Uh, mm -hmm. And from a, from a labor agenda and, and from a labor rights perspective, obviously this is something where yeah, I think we we spend quite a lot of time on at the moment with the unions too. So like, uh, yeah, wrap wrap our head around that and uh, to to start educating the players um, so that there's enough awareness in the market on on how it's collected and for what purpose. Yeah, I presume you're also using that data as part of the you know the explanation to FIFA and 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 others, the other authorities. You know, about the impact of the game on your players and their bodies, because you know the FIFA and, and others are talking about expanding the size of the World Cup. You know, bringing in the Club World Championship, pretty much bringing in year-round football, right? Which is going to really profoundly affect you know sort of the elite players that you were talking about earlier. Yeah, and uh, look, I mean, I think there, there's a massive part when you just look into the technology sector. Um, this this crossroads between health and performance tech. Um, see a massive amount of new companies entering the, the space uh, on either the player side or the club side um, with all sorts of new applications um, trying to make sense of uh, of player related data um, but it's it's so far a very unregulated unregulated market also in terms of standard who's doing what what data is collected for what for what purpose 
Um, and I mean, we have published uh, together with FIFA the card of player data rights uh, just ahead of the Qatar World Cup. Um, and that's probably one of the areas where I think from a, from a, just from a labor and from a union perspective, um, yeah, it's, it's the start of a journey also for us um, to, to, to really understand what's going on behind the scenes. Um, yeah, and I think that's a journey in general the, the industry is on as well. That's great. I think that Dr. Alex Colvin has just joined us on the line. So welcome, Alex. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. And and one of the things we usually sometimes like to ask guests as well is whether they have a football team. And so we're curious, which is yours? Yeah, you've caught me on a on a bad moment. Guy after Liverpool got battered last night, three one by Arsenal. But I support Liverpool. Okay, have you Yay. been? <laughs> have you, were you, so from from childhood. So did you used to go to Anfield as well, or? Yeah, I come from a family of season ticket holders um, at, at Anfield. So. I've been brought up on um, on Liverpool Football Club. Mm-hmm. And, and I think one of the first things we wanted to ask is that we are going to come to uh, what FIFA Pro does. We've, we've talked to, with Alexander about what FIFA Pro does, and we, we're curious to hear from you the, what whether there are issues that uh, you know women's footballers pl- face a similar or difference to the men's. But one of the things that we start wanted to start out by asking is, because you are the first <laughs> professional footballer we've had on the show as well, what uh, an organization like FIFPro or the FA, basically labor organizations, what does it look like from the changing room and for, for, for players? I mean, are you actively involved from the very start? Um, you know, you've made the journey from footballer to labor rights advocate. So, so can you sort of take us a bit through that? Were you, was, were you naturally inclined to do that from the very beginning? Um, do players tend to feel like that or do they tend to sort of just take it up as they sort of get closer to, uh, to, to or they start thinking about what they're going to do after after their careers? Yeah, I think there's like there's not a one size fits all approach to, to player activism and like advocacy. I think for me specifically, I guess I grew up in a in a household of, of like activists, really. My dad um, was part of the Labour Party from when I was very, very young um he used to take me on lots of marches when I was young some of his I think proudest moments of me um shouting Maggie 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 out 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 in a, in um against Margaret Thatcher in the 80s so um I think for me that was kind of like an actual inclination I guess um when I experience or observe injustices um it lights a fire in my in my belly I guess and and I'm inclined um and have a, yeah, a natural inclination to, uh, to you know to seek justice for either myself or or other or, or other players I guess and when I when I was playing at, at Bristol actually in the FAWSL in its in its first year um we had a we had Mark Sampson as manager who later was um sacked as England manager and there was a couple of um issues that I encountered um as a player in that team that um were 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 labor labor rights issues where workplace issues and when I saw to kind of remedy this and, and rectify this I what I recognized quite quickly um was that there was very limited structures in place where players could formally um highlight issues that were that were that they were encountering within their clubs. Um, and actually, when players do highlight issues, there's this um, real retaliation that can occur, and, mm-hmm. and nothing protects players from that retaliation. And the retaliation can vary; that can just be 
benched. I can be left out of the squad. That can also be, you know, contract renewal. There's there's various various escalations that clubs use against players when they when they raise concerns um, about their workplace conditions. And so that for me was my first real taste. Before that, I played at Everton under a you know under a brilliant manager Mo Marley. Um, I'd also played at Azad, a very very professional club, um, and the treatments of players were were that of high performance athletes. And that all changed for me a little bit when I got to Bristol. Mm. Um, and I think from that moment, it, it also stimulated, um, for me, a kind of intellectualization of this process. And, and, and I wanted to investigate this more. I went on to do a master's, which looked at kind of the um, unintended consequences of, of professionalization. And then I looked at the employment and workplace conditions of professional women footballers for my PhD. And I think what stood out for me most interestingly is um, that since I left football, like probably six years before, not much had changed for the players. And this kind of like not, uh, you know, a one size fits all approach to activism. Like what I mean by that is when players encounter difficulties, it's either ingrained in them, I guess, from a young age Mm -hmm. in the way that it was for me. Or then you see players who have experienced these um transgressions in their career whether that's like an employment issue whether that's you know sexual assault in the workplace whether that's emotional abuse whatever it is violence in the workplace and and it also it probably feels for them like a recognition same as what I had where there's actually no way for me to lodge this complaint and if Mm. and if I do so you know there's there's retribution that can be taken and therefore I lose my career so it's really interesting for us at FIFA when when like you know, the media questions like, you know, why didn't players just speak out? And it's like their livelihood is at risk constantly mm-hmm. on a day-to-day um, basis, particularly in women's football where the contracts, and I know we'll get onto this in a little bit, but the contracts are notoriously very, very short. Yeah. You're talking si- sometimes six-month contracts, a year contracts, and you're expecting players to raise concerns where their careers can just be over like that. So I think the 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 kind of the activism that we see in players really starts to emerge at very different points and this can be individual activism and this can be like team activism like what you're seeing for example in Spain Jamaica Nigeria you know the the list in women's football unfortunately is very long um so yeah I don't think there's a one-size-all approach um but I think what we've noticed and I guess a trend in women's football now is that actually players are recognizing that they do have a voice and that voice is very, very powerful when it comes in a, as a collective and mm. we can really instigate and, um, you know, activate real change within within their work environments. Yeah, it's great. I mean, you mentioned that yourself, um, you referred to it in, in, in the first answer, but your remit at, at FIFPRO is specifically um, related to women's football. I was wondering whether you, you could tell us a bit about the specific challenges. I think you, you mentioned the one of the short contracts, which is something that um, whenever uh, um, I we hear about this is always stunning. But um, what are the main differences? What are the main themes that you that you'd say you see from a, from women um, perspective in terms of sort of trade union challenges, particularly? It's a couple of really big industrial issues um, that we encounter, like on a day to day basis, and. And obviously one of them and kind of maybe the overarching one is is gender discrimination. So if you think about women's football, there's, sorry, women and men's football, there's two distinct labour markets, if you like, with one governance structure. 
and that governance structure was set up um, just to cater to men's football um, because professional women's football did not exist when when um, when we, when the governance structure was set up. Um, and that kind of, and I don't believe in trickle-down economics, but I do believe in trickle-down effects and kind of like the domino effect. So when that, when that structure is set up and it's catered for and developed mainly by white middle-class men, mm-hmm. catered into a labour market that is, you know, it, it is for men's football, there's, there's policies and practice that are developed over a long period of time that are built on this, on this male model. And that means that women are discriminated against on multiple levels. You know, this is structural and systematic um, discrimination that we that we face. So that's kind of like what I would say is like the overall overarching theme, if you like. And then if you if you break it down into either like layers or verticals, every every issue that we encounter is prefaced by that discrimination, mm-hmm. whether that's kind of like an economic argument whether that's a contractual argument, whether that's a, an abusive argument, um, whether that's kind of like prize money at an international level or, or a domestic level, there's kind of like verticals and, and, and kind of layers that women are always hit, hitting the kind of like the, the discrimination that they feel. And I think what that kind of neatly sets us up to talk about is the differences in the advocacy that we see. So... Mm-hmm. <clears throat> women have been fighting whether it's it's been able to you know in 1921 in england to just be able to get on a fa affiliated pitch mm. versus now when we talk about prize money at, at the world cup or the fa cup for example in england the disparity is huge but women are generationally built to fight injustice because mm-hmm. they've had to fight for every moment that they get every kind of like quote unquote win that we get whether that's being able to enter a a pitch or whether that's you know for the first time at the women's world cup in 2023 where women for the first time were paid for their participation in the world cup Mm. the kind of the scale of difference is is huge obviously the progress has been made it's very slow but women are built to fight discrimination and that's not just in in the football mm-hmm. workplace. You know, that's you could talk about any workplace in the world. Academia is another really yeah. good example of that. But you know, this nothing is taken for granted in women's football, and they have to fight and fight and fight and fight. And that actually is is exhausting. You know, mm-hmm. you get to that point where, and I and I have it. You know, working in the football governance industry where it is absolutely mentally and physically and emotionally exhausting having to fight for every small win that you get. And that's no different to the to the players on the pitch. The difference is, I guess, for players is that an athlete, you know, across the world, and this is whether it's talking about gender discrimination, race, sexual abuse, whatever, um, it's always athletes that are leading the way. We are led by the athletes because mm. they are so innovative, mm-hmm. they are so determined, and they, you know, they are fighting for space now. Women are fighting for space in this kind of um, not only male dominated, but me- you know, it's it, it, the male game is highly commodified, mm-hmm. um, and so what what we what that means is what we've got to do and the kind of the, the strategies and the innovations got to be different. So you've got to almost sometimes circumvent the system 
whilst simultaneously and in parallel making the baby steps of trying to change the system. Mm. You can also circumvent it for a quicker kind of escalation and course of action, if that makes sense. So I think the issues that women face, you know, there's some similar issues, for example, workload, discrimination, Mm -hmm. they're same issues. The the forms take different, different manifestations, but it's a, it's an industrial issue that's shared, but then, there are industrial issues that are completely different mm-hmm. and it all starts with this historical discrimination. And it's not something that I want to labor and talk about too, too much, but I think it's, it's like a missing piece that misses from yeah. the, from the critical discourse that we hear quite often about women's football. It's when you talk, when you listen or watch or talk, like read the media, the way that the like kind of position women's sport quite often is that like, it's just being catapulted down from Mars and they're like, oh my God, what's this amazing thing that we can see now? And women can actually play football. Whereas actually that the, the standing on the shoulders of giants that have gone on and yeah. fought, you know, generation after generation for the kind of the fruition that we see today and the professionalization that we see today. That's great. We have an excellent episode uh, with Kerry Dunn, the first one we made that discusses a lot of the challenges and the historical context. I think it, it kind of mm. um, complements very well what, what Alex was saying. So listeners who are enjoying these episodes should also go and, and check that out. No, no, I should say, but with, with Carrie's episode, we very much looked at uh, the, the state of play in England as well, specifically, given that FIFA Pro you know, represents um, you know, footballers across the world. I wonder if you could say a little bit about sort of the type of challenges that, say, European women face versus, say, you know, women playing football in, in other parts of the world, other regions of the world. Yeah, I think w- what we've seen with kind of like professionalization, there's been an acceleration in some parts of the world, particularly Europe and North America. And then there's this, which is also very fragmented. If you think about like the way that the NWSL has been, there's been three leagues that it's like boom and bust a little bit like the capitalist system. If you like what happens, you see that kind of in parallel in women's football. Um, But there is a kind of professionalization and a professional game that's quite strong now in some parts of Europe and some parts of um, the US. Mexico is a good example as well. Canada's just starting its first professional league in 2025. And then you have other parts of the world that um, are quite are slower to professionalise. Um, <clears throat> and what we do at FIFA is we have um, regional specificity, the knowledge we have. We break the kind of FIFA umbrella down into divisions. So we have Division Africa, Division South America, Division Central and North America, Europe, and so on. Um, and they have the regional understanding and the regional specificities, and they obviously have much more of a, a knowledge of what's happening like on the ground in their regions. Um, that said, there are there are distinct differences, but also real strong commonalities that you see across the markets, whether that's in Europe or not. Um, and what you see in like, for example, um, Africa, um, South America, some part of Asia, is that there's just not enough competitive games either on an mm-hmm. international level, or if you talk about like um, within countries within those continents, if you like, there's not professional leagues that are set up. So whilst in like Europe and, and North America, you've got professional leagues that could be improved, i.e. the quality, the, the, the conditions and all of that, they've got a professional league. And I use that term very loosely because 
what we understand as professional at FIFPRO and what kind of the the outside mm-hmm. outside the FIFPRO understand as professional. The gap is also different. Um, you know, the gap also exists in that. But if we just take the kind of carefully understanding of professionalization, i.e. players have contracts, they're paid, etc., um, then we can say like in Africa, South America, um, in Asia, there's some professionalization, but there's not enough professional um, leagues for players to play in. And that's why you see so much migration from those countries mm-hmm. and the top players in those countries going to play in North America and going to play in, in, um, in Europe. So you kind of got that as a as a professionalization issue and the number of games. You then got the players who are playing professional football, um, which is obviously FIFA's remit. We deal with employment and labor, and that's professional football. Those who are playing professional football are just not earning enough money. So we we did a study very recently um, on multiple job holding across 12 countries um, across all continents in the world. And there's a high proportion of players that are playing and they quote um, class themselves as a professional footballer, um, but also have a second form of occupation, which again, you know, beyond the economic argument of the problem with that, there's kind of like a well-being issue. There's a burnout issue. There's a mental burnout issue. There's also, you know, being able to juggle sometimes two jobs on top of a professional football career. A lot of those players were also international players, so they have to take long, either unpaid or paid vacation um, from their second form of employment to go and play in international tournaments. These are all problems that we see like manifested across the world. And then, I guess, a, a, a problem that um, also exists in women's football is where there's professional environments, i.e. there's professional football, and I'm saying quote-unquote, um, and players are paid some money. They have a very short contract. So, it, you know, by the FIFA definition, that means they're professional. The kind of lack of professional structure is also mm. what we see quite regularly is where forms of abuse start to manifest. And whether that's psychological um, all the way to sexual abuse, that lack of professional environment can manifest into, um, you know, forms of abusive behaviour. And, and and they're the issues that you see right across the world. They're ranging from, and you see in the case in the NWSL, one of the biggest leagues in the world, you see it right across the globe. And so this, you know, the the kind of, the badge of honour that a lot of clubs wear, of profession, you know, we're a professional club, but they don't actually have high-performance um, structures in place or high-performance multidisciplinary teams that support the players that means that's an unprofessional environment and that play means that players can't thrive either on the pitch or off the pitch and that's a common thread that we see across the globe and I mean we've only got mm. a short amount of time I could mm. you know there's mm. there's so many issues that that we that we encounter yep. um but yeah kind of the economic one the professional one having a multiple multiple job holding and then the abuse that we see um, as a consequence of the unprofessionalism is a, a kind of the issues that I would cite mm. um, in more developing um, countries. Alex, we need to get you back and we need to discuss some of these uh, topics more mm. in detail. But before we let you go, um, who do you want to see as next Liverpool manager after Klopp leaves? That's a question I cannot avoid <laughs> <laughs> asking you. <laughs> 
I don't know. I think I'll probably like Javi Alonso. I don't think he's proven. Um, but I think he's probably someone that the fans will give loads of time to. And I think any manager that comes into kind of the clock project, if you like, over the last eight years is someone that's going to need time. Um, so probably Javi would be my choice. I watched a couple of like Bayer Leverkusen games and they play a really nice brand of football. He's obviously played under some really incredible managers. So his kind of education going into management has been top level and he gets the club. The mm -hmm. fans love him. Thank you very much. I know. Thanks for indulging me. I know the topics we were discussing were more important. But as a football fan, I want I wanted to get your yeah. view on this. Thank you, and, and thank and thank you so much, you know, Alex, for taking the time. We really appreciate. Yeah, no problem. Thanks a lot for your time. Cheers. And thank you, thank you, Alexander, as well. Thank you, Alexander. Thank you for having me. Uh, it was fantastic. Thanks <laughs> for the invitation. So that was fascinating. What, so what, what do we need to tell our listeners? Well, we need to tell our listeners the usual things. They need to go on their app that they're, they're getting the podcast from, whether it's Spotify, Apple, and uh, like it, rate it, um, get in touch with their friends and families and tell, us about the, tell them about the podcast. But they also need to get in touch with us because we, we are always keen to um, think about new episodes and, or guests mm. to invite and, and any feedback. We are on all of the main media, aren't we? All of this, the social uh, networks, on Twitter and Facebook mm -hmm. and Blue Sky, and you're on LinkedIn. So mm -hmm. they can easily get in touch with us. And what else do we need to remind them? Well, what remind? Can we also? Can you also remind the listeners what we're who we're speaking to next week? So next week is going to be Paul Watson on the politics of football in small nations. Well, that it sounds pretty cool. So I look forward to that. So great. So we'll see. I'll speak to you again next week, then, Francesco. Take care. Good luck with your technology this week as well, Guy. Good luck with the microphone and, and the, all the related issues. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.